In January of 2021, the Greater Glasgow Pensioners for Independence Group asked Ruth Wishart to come to talk to us. Ruth's a very well-known, very talented journalist, broadcaster, commentator. She's also of our generation. She talked to us for about half an hour and she called her talk, Our Generation, Why It's Important and Why It Isn't. After hearing Ruth's thoughts on that topic, we opened the meeting out and had a question and answer session for about another half hour. So hope you enjoy listening to this. It will also be broadcast by Indie Live Radio and you'll also find it on SoundCloud and Podbean if you search for Scottish Independence Podcasts. So, here we go. Hope you enjoy this. Okay. Okay. Right then. Happy New Year to everybody and welcome to the Greater Glasgow Pensioners for Independence talk with Ruth Wishart. And now uh, I'll hand over to Val to give a short introduction to Ruth and we'll get the talk started. So I would just like to welcome Ruth very much. I'm sure those of you who attend book festivals will have seen many of Ruth's interviews over the years. Ruth, um, not only does she interview people but she has her own book festival the Cove and Kilcreggan book festival which went online this year. Ruth is a very prominent and esteemed freelance now journalist who has written for all of the big newspapers over the years. She describes herself as an art, sports and animal lover, a Glaswegian urban cowboy now living, turned rural birder and now living in Argyll. And she, just before um, the meeting opened, she showed us the fabulous view over Loch Long, the sun setting. So if she's distracted, that'll be why. <laughs> so I'd like to welcome Ruth so much to the meeting and I hope, I'm sure we're all going to very much enjoy her talk. Thank you, Ruth. Thanks very much, Val. Um, I, I think uh, I said to Mary that I, I wanted to talk uh, about um, the fact that we as a group have got a very important role to play in the upcoming referendum, whenever that occurs. So my talk today is called Why We Matter and Why We Don't. And I'd like to start um, by offering two apparently contradictory propositions, that our generation is the most important one in terms of gaining independence and that it's simultaneously the most irrelevant. Now, we're important because we are the last demographic which still sets its face against an independent Scotland. The polling has seen a steady and marked shift towards a yes vote in every age group but ours. Whilst the yes vote has gone up exponentially among young Scots, up to 80% in some age groups, there's still a stubborn two-thirds of us crumblies who are spoiling the picture, and we're endangering the result and it going the wrong way. Especially as we're also the generation who are most likely to go out and vote and uh, or send off our vote, depending on what happens with this uh, pandemic. And that means that we all of us have a very particular responsibility, not only to cast our own vote in whatever form that's going to take, but um, we have to make a real effort to make sure everybody else in our, um, in our community, everybody else that we know does so too. So that means if you've got a car, you have to fill it up on the way to the polls and... If you're in a networking group, you have to make sure that 
the last message you send to them before polling day is how essential it is to use their franchise. Now, of course, not all of them are going to vote yes. That's just a risk you take. But the point is, if they don't get up and go to vote, if they don't send up a mailed vote, then they might lose us a valuable one. So in that sense, our demographic really does matter, even if at the moment it might seem if it's a bit of a negative way. But two other things, uh, folks, are also true. The enthusiasm of the young in our community means that we need a relatively small shift in older Scots to come over to what I like to think of as the light side. And the second thing to remember is that we have the power to be the most important evangelists for independence within our own age group, because there's really nothing more important than peer pressure, nothing more likely to sway a swithering independence voter than someone with their own lifestyle and uh, uh, similar fears and, and, and encouraging them to vote for a Scotland from which they themselves may not directly benefit, but we can be sure their families certainly will. Now, there's an old fable about people who plant saplings of trees or try to build a new forest. And some of them may never live to sit under the shade of these trees, and some of them may never be able to wander through these mature forests. But they understand the value of planning for a better tomorrow. And they understand that in the expectation and in the knowledge that they've made a real and a valuable contribution to it. You know, when I was talking uh, about perhaps speaking to this group today, one of the people who first approached me said she didn't talk much with her friends about politics because she didn't want to seem a bit rude and intrusive. Well, to be frank, folks, intrusive is exactly what we have to be. I have friends who voted yes in 2014 because, frankly, I wore them down. Not from nagging them, but from laying out for them the many reasons I believe that Scotland would be a fairer and pleasanter land after she had control over her own affairs. Of course, it's not enough to come over all Pollyanna or Mary Poppins. You have to back up your views with very positive examples, and that's what we will have to do next time round. Our age group is perfectly entitled to ask us the hard questions about their personal finances, to know they're not voting for a poorer old age, because who wants one of these? They need to know that the benefits and income they currently enjoy will not be threatened or adversely affected when we become independent. Now, there are some people in the independence movement who will vote yes, no matter what the short and medium term impact of that will be, no matter whether or not it's going to cost them any more in taxation. And I don't dissent from that view myself, but I recognise that to make converts, to make real converts, we have to be in a position to identify and lay out the very specific benefits of voting yes. Now, some of these benefits, it seems to me, are already pretty evident. The fact of getting the government you vote for, something which Scots electors haven't been able to do since the 1950s. The knowledge that your human and employment rights will not suffer. Already this week, you know, there was a Tory MP who suggested that now Britain was no longer in the EU, they could make a bonfire of all these hard-won rights. Now, they don't usually put it quite as boldly as that. Um, the chap in question, who, as it happens, was a colleague of that nice um, Dom, Dominic Cummings in the Vote Leave campaign, he, they usually say something like, it's time to get rid of unnecessary red tape, which is UK government speak for letting employers take away their uh, workers' rights for, for letting them revert to practices which avoids protecting their workforce or paying them a decent wage for a decent day's work. That's what they mean by a bonfire of the red tape. 
Now, of course, when it actually comes to the campaigning crunch, we'll have to be ready with hard facts rather than just cuddly opinions. Unfortunately, I can tell you there's a great deal of hard work being done right now backstage on issues which matter greatly to the over 60s and for that matter to everybody else, matters relating to social security, to pensions and to the economy. And we'll get the benefit of all that work before the next referendum campaign gets properly underway. But in the meantime, as I've indicated, there are already things we know to be true and these are worth flagging up in our initial conversations with friends. We know, for instance, that our pensions among the worst in Europe and being part of the UK has not been a passport to a more secure retirement. And that's a situation which certainly isn't going to improve now that we've left Europe. We know that a huge majority of Scots across all age groups voted to remain in Europe and many of them were no voters in 2014. Many of them were no voters because Better Together assured them that the way to lose their European citizenship was to vote yes. But of course, in fairness, many people also genuinely believe that Scotland would be better remaining in the, Europe, in, in the United Kingdom. But just the same, we have to remind ourselves that that was three prime ministers, two general elections and a Brexit referendum ago. And the world's a very, very different place in 2021. The political landscape has changed out of all recognition. And these so-called soft no voters are the people to whom we must talk at every opportunity. We have to remind them that the kind of shell put deal that was hammered out at two minutes to midnight is in every regard worse than the one we had while we were in the EU. Tariff and quota free trade, well, we had that already. The promises made to fishing communities, almost all of these have been broken. And for the next six and a half years, our fisher folk will have access to fewer fish than they had before. On the West Coast, where I now live, actually where I've always lived when I think about it, but the West West Coast I'm in now, the shellfish trade um, it largely sells to Spain and France and it just can't survive any lengthy delays with new compulsory customs declarations. Already just a few days into this brave new Brexit world, the Scottish seafood industry has indicated that the new arrangements, and I quote their leader, are a shambles. Where once their trailers were subject to random checks of occasional samples, now the whole contents of consignments are being examined and they're being held up due to all manner of problems with barcodes and a lack of vets to hand. The one thing all of us know about seafood, certainly all of us who cook, is that it takes very little time to go off. Now, it's not the smallest of ironies that all the people who preached about unnecessary Brussels bureaucracy have managed to land our businesses with a mountain of red tape. I think the most appalling piece of hypocrisy uttered in the last few weeks came from that nice Michael Gove. He told us that Northern Ireland had the best of both worlds. It was still able to access all the privileges of being in the EU, but it could also trade and remain in the UK. But what is to be celebrated in Northern Ireland is not to be available in Scotland, apparently, which voted remain in even greater numbers. Now, I think we've got to remind ourselves that just under 52% of the whole UK electorate voted to leave Europe. Yet it's been treated like a massive majority, like tablets of stone. As it happens, it's almost, and those of you with good memories and who are as chronologically gifted as I am will know this, it's almost exactly the same percentage who voted yes in 1979. But nobody went around suggesting then that that was the sacred will of the people and must be respected at all costs. In fact, if you remember, that result was declared invalid because it breached a new device which declared that 40% of the entire electorate had to vote yes before it became acceptable. Now, the, facts that, the fact that Scots voted to stay in Europe by a margin of almost two to one has been simply ignored, but we should be used to that because 
Scotland's vote has been regarded as irrelevant in every general election for the last 70 years. Now, just ponder that thought. For 70 years, Scottish electors have never had the Westminster government they voted for. When we become a nation state again, Scotland will get the government for which it votes. And whatever your party allegiance, that's just democracy, pure and simple. There are nine countries in the EU with very much smaller populations than we have. And if Liechtenstein and Malta can manage to handle their own affairs, I really can't see why we can't. Even countries who pick the halfway house of the European Free Trade Association have considerably more democratic freedoms than we have. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could start our new life with the kind of massive oil fund built up by Norway when prices were sky high? Instead, our oil wealth went into the treasury to shore up the collateral damage of deindustrialization. Now, we can't get these heady days back, let's not kid ourselves, and we certainly can't get our money back. But what we can do is maximize our own opportunities and play to our own very specific strengths. Looking to our commercial future, Scotland is ideally placed to take advantage of sectors like renewable energy and biotechnology, provided we're able to manage our own economy, access the borrowing powers utilised by every other independent country, not least in recent months, and take our own strategic decisions, predicated on what matters to Scotland, what matters to our wee corner of the globe, and not what matters to the southeast of England. We're better placed as an independent country not to be the collateral damage of decisions taken in London, like that aerospace one which resulted in punishing tariffs being levied on Scottish malt whisky by the Americans, many of whom were representing uh, constituencies which specialise in bourbon. Now, these are the kind of things we need to emphasise to our friends and our family in any arena where we have a voice. <clears throat> the current London government has proved that if you tell a lie often enough, people will come to believe it. And we've got to use exactly these tactics with the truth, with actual facts. I'm sure nobody was holding their breath for Boris Johnson to start signing weekly checks for £350 million for the National Health Service. That was just one of the many blatant lies which have got us where we are. The other card we need to play is contrasting the governments of Edinburgh and London. Even the erstwhile friends of the London uh, government and the current London administration have made it clear that the current cabinet is the least impressive in living memory. If you choose people because they agree with you rather than because they've got a good and independent mind, then that's what happens. You appoint a second rate, you appoint second raters and you get third rate performances from them. It's often said that what made Nicola Sturgeon more popular in Scotland than Boris Johnson, who scarcely dares come over the border, by the way, unless he's got a Praetorian guard and he's shuffled around into safe spaces in the middle of nowhere. The one thing that people say is that she's handled the pandemic better. And I think that's really too simplistic. Certainly, she's got many more communication skills than the Prime Minister. The bar is not very high. She's also taken time to contextualise the decisions which are made on our behalf. And that's, that's important because to explain the why of these decisions matters greatly in keeping public confidence and getting and keeping public confidence. But what she's also done, and there are many of us who may not utterly agree with this tactic, but what she has also done is put her independence campaign on the back burner because of the overriding importance of addressing the COVID epidemic. The only folks who are continually obsessing about an independence referendum these days are the Scottish Tories. Meanwhile, however, Boris Johnson barreled on with Brexit, piling crisis upon crisis. Perhaps he hoped the fallout from Brexit could be camouflaged by the fallout from COVID. The stark facts are he prioritised his own policy 
his own policy and his own obsessions over the health of all of the UK nations. He's also made U-turns into what I would regard as an Olympic class event. So let's never forget to tell people that independence is not just about one party. If people wish to vote Liberal or Tory, Lib Dem or Green or SNP in an independent Scotland, they will be absolutely free to do so. The crucial difference, as I've indicated earlier, is that they will get the government they voted for, the government that will reflect the votes and the voting strength of the individual parties, rather than one which last saw a majority vote in Scotland in the 1950s. Now we have six Tory MPs out of 59 in Westminster and 31 of our 129 MSPs in Holyrood who are Tories, and that doesn't give that party the right to decide Scotland's future, or indeed to deny Scottish voters the right to determine Scottish future, Scotland's future. So these are all the things that we've got to tell swithering voters wherever and whenever we can. To go back to um, that advice I got earlier from one of your group, let's be intrusive, let's get right into people's faces and meetings with these views, because it's going to matter this time, every vote's going to matter. We can't afford to take anything for granted, not least because you can be sure that the same kind of lies will be told as were told in 2014. But we also need to emphasize folks what we're, what we're in danger of losing. There will no longer be the freedom to travel or work in Europe. Our children and grandchildren will not be part of international student exchanges. You know, the Erasmus scheme was one of the most influential and one of the most innovative ever devised. It allowed our young people to uh, study in another country. And just as importantly, it introduced Scotland to students coming the other way. Students who will one day be influential citizens of their own country. Soft power matters, and that soft power is being lost. Meanwhile, we'll be joining that unlovely queue at airports reserved for non-EU passport holders. And we will become an inward, uh, part of an inward-looking, increasingly insignificant United Kingdom one which is displaying attitudes towards migrants and towards minorities, which shouldn't be part of any modern multinational community. I don't want Pretty Patel to speak for me or my country. That hostility to European workers and all the barriers put in place to make their future uncertain and often unworkable, to be frank, has led us to lose thousands, uh, tens of thousands of desperately needed health professionals and care workers. We relied on these people and we let them down, except that we had no say in that betrayal. It's led farming communities like our own berry growers in Perthshire and Angus to despair about having enough temporary labor, labor seasonal labor to bring in their crops. Telling our peer group about all these things is why our generation still does matter because we've got more opportunity than anyone else to talk to the demographic which is still inclined in huge numbers to vote no. But I also argue that there are ways in which we don't matter because the independence referendum in the last resort isn't actually about us. It's about our grandchildren. It's about their future. We don't have the right to mortgage a future about which they are overwhelmingly convinced and enthusiastic. Do you really want to look your grandchild in the eye and say, I don't care what you want, I'm going to cancel out your vote? Younger Scots are the future and we frankly are not. We can certainly help shape it and we have the life and work experience to lend to it, but our yesterdays can't be allowed to trump their tomorrows. So we must also say this to our hesitant peer group. We've had a pretty good innings. We've enjoyed the freedom to live and work and study in Europe if we wanted to, and not to put 
too fine a point in it, most of us will be six feet under or fertilizing the roses by the time our grandchildren and their children are running this country. Would any of us really want subsequent generations to have fewer choices or live in a more insular country? Or will we want to help create an independent Scotland and fight to ensure it has a more communitarian and equitable sense of values? A country which will be global in its outlook, not a little England mentality, but an outward facing Scotland, one content to become a self-respecting member of the European and international communities. You know, the older I get, the more convinced I am that Scotland is better and can do better than what's now on offer. I'll have my wish at Yesmobile geared up for another Scotland-wide tour when the campaign gets fully underway again. But there's work to be done in the meantime, folks to be convinced, folks to be enthused and brought on board. So let's get out there and let's do it. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you. Has anybody any questions? Um, oh, Mary, you're first on the list. Yeah, I was going round um, in 2014. One thing they said was that when people were um, researching it more, then they got the autumn, the, most of them moved over to yes rather than the other direction. So the thing we had against us at that time was that most people hadn't thought about independence. It was a, a new kid in the block. But I did see that during the course of the campaign, people were willing to talk longer and longer in the doors because they were starting to think about it. Now, what we've got at the moment is that young people, it's mainstream for them. Older people, some of them are still in the in the world of not wanting to think about politics and um, just going and voting the way they always had done. So I wondered what ways we could catch the attention of people who are not naturally into politics. I mean, I write letters to the papers all the time. So the old folk who still read newsprint might get to see that in among looking at the sports pages or looking at the fashion pages or whatever they're interested in. At the moment, we can't do stalls because of the pandemic. Um, but there's such danger at the moment with the internal trade bill. Um, their conservatism won't help them there because that is a big change that's coming along with Brexit. So how do we actually get the attention of people who are not interested in politics, don't want to talk about politics? Um, how do we actually get them to pay attention? Any new, new ideas about this? Sorry, I've well, talked too much. <laughs> I've got an old idea, actually. Uh, it's one borrowed from the late, great Margaret MacDonald. Um, she said... Um, and kept saying that if every one of us who are yes voters, if every one of us just persuaded one no voter to switch, mm -hmm. one mm -hmm. soft no voter to switch, then we'd have won. Then the contest would be over. And that still holds, holds true. And remember, too, that we're not starting from the same low base no. <laughs> that we did the last time. I mean, we went from 28% to 45%. At the moment, uh, the last poll had us at 58%. We've got a, a strong springboard this time, a stronger springboard this time. So that's why I'm saying it's absolutely vital that we harness the enthusiasm of people in our own immediate circle, some of whom will be yes voters, some of whom will not have thought much about politics, and some of whom will be no voters. But just one of them, one of them for each of us, will do the trick. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Ken uh, Kendall. Hi. Um, many thanks, Ruth. That, that was that was very interesting. Um, the the you, you're talking about the demographics and how the, all the, the the young people are, are 70, 80 percent yes, and older folk like ourselves 
um, are still strongly conservative, small c conservative. And that links in, I think, to the people who still read newspapers, because I don't know anyone under the age of 60 that still actually reads a physical newspaper. And obviously newspapers are heavily biased. And also amongst that, amongst that demographic are the people who still watch news on TV, STV and BBC News, whereas young people tend not to watch news and they tend to get it on feeds and et cetera. The question is really, I'm not sure what we can, I know, I know Mary writes to the Herald on a regular basis and gets published. Um, but how do, we, how do we influence, particularly the BBC, um, who are much more subtle in their, in their, in their, uh, um, in their I can call it propaganda, much more subtle in their propaganda. How can we influence them uh, in a practical way? Because I've tried and you know, I feel like I'm banging my head against a wall with it. I think you probably are. Um, and that's not how I, where I think the future lies. I mean, if there's one thing we've learned from America, we've learned a lot of things not to do uh, from America, but if there's one thing we've learned it's the potency of social media. Um, tomorrow's election and tomorrow's referendum are going to, be, going to be largely fought online and on social media. And I would, I mean, here we are today, uh, people of a certain age, all chatting to each other online over, um, a device that, well, I mean, I, for, for starters, I hadn't heard of Zoom until last March, and now I'm on Zoom every day for a variety of different reasons. And uh, it's not my communication sphere of choice, but the point is that it's, it's filled a, a gap at a very important time. Now, I, I am, I'm afraid, mildly addicted to Twitter. Twitter does two things. Um, it allows you to fill up time when you should be working. I use quite a lot of it as displacement activity, but more importantly, it allows you to get a message out to an awful lot more people. If I send out a tweet, I mean, I'm, I'm not suggesting for a moment that um, the sort of 23 odd thousand people that um, follow me are going to hang on every word because they're not, and they're not going to see every tweet because they're not. But if I keep tweeting and if I keep saying pro-independence things, uh, there is a drip drip effect and there's a drip drip effect for all of us on Twitter and all of us on Facebook. So, and indeed all of us on Instagram, though I don't use that because um, because that's a step too far, frankly. But um, <laughs> if you get on to Twitter, it's, it's dead easy to get on. And there, it can be a poisonous well, but just ignore the idiots and just block the nasties and just get out there with your message. Next up, we have Jim Stamper. Hi, Ruth. Thank you very much again for that great presentation. Um, I think one of the biggest things is, uh, for the generation that we're, we're in is a complacency about how democratic the UK is and this assumption that we are basically a leading democracy in the world and all this kind of stuff. The kind of figures that you were talking about where Scotland hasn't received the government that's voted for, I think is quite important. Um, but one of the other things, I don't know if you're aware of a bill that's recently in the House of uh, Westminster called the Covert Human Intelligence Resources Bill. This is a bill which is basically authorising criminal conduct by uh, MI5, the police, uh, armed forces, if it's to try and protect the UK and the UK economy. There was an amendment proposed that would have prevented some of things on that. So they were voting to see whether it was actually going to be acceptable 
to have, I'll read this, uh, causing in intentionally or by criminal negligence, death or bodily harm to an individual, willfully attempting to obstruct and pervert and defeat the coast of justice, violating the sexual, sexual integrity of people, subject, subjecting individuals to torture uh, or criminal and human uh, treatment. So there was an amendment in to stop all these things being allowed. And it was actually voted by a majority to allow these things to happen in the UK, to the police to do these things to our own citizens. I think most people will be surprised that that would even be contemplated. It's not law yet because it's still going through. But the fact that there was a majority that voted for that and there was no, there was only two Scottish MPs who voted to allow that and all the rest either, well, 90% of them voted against allowing it. So I think these kind of, you know, being, that sort of says a lot about the democracy we're facing now. Yeah, well, I mean, none of these things should surprise us because if, if we've got a government in Westminster which was quite happy to shut down Parliament to make sure it got its way, nothing else after that should really surprise us. I mean, I do know a bit, a little bit about the, the legislation you're talking about, but to be perfectly frank, I think that these, these kind of issues are quite complicated and quite complex and quite difficult to get over in a, in a, in a, the kind of, um, well, I hate to use the term soundbite, but you know what I mean? They're quite difficult to get over in a way that's easily understood and easily digested. So my own feeling is that we have to, um, we have to stick with some half, some half a dozen broad brush messages about how Scotland will become a better place. These things, I mean, that's crucially important. Of course it is, but it's the kind of thing that we, that we can address. I don't think, for instance, in an independent Scotland that legislation of that kind would have a prayer. So that's another reason. It's not that I'm, it's not that I'm indifferent to what they're trying to do. It's just that I think there are other more important messages we have to get across first. Thank you. Okay. Next up, we have Yvonne Keith. Hello, uh, thank you Ruth for your talk, it was very interesting. I would just like to ask, um, once people are converted to the independence cause, uh, how do we get them to not change their mind under pressure from the people from Westminster coming up here and doing what they did the last time? I just wondered your view on that please. Well, that's going to be quite difficult because, I mean, as, as many of you will know, there is already a, a unit set up by Michael Gove, um, the union unit in his, uh, I mean, it's got a fancier name, but that's basically what it's about, set up in the bills of Westminster. And that's already churning out propaganda um, to people in, in Scotland. And so, in a sense, the um, the no campaign is already underway, which is why I think it's really urgent that we, A, remember that and B, try and counter it. I think what will I think the, the way in which we can uh, stop that being effective is is having a suite of answers to the most likely questions. For instance, one of the questions which sunk us the last time was about the currency. Was about uh, the currency, and there are several schools of thought about that, um, as you know. But I do know, and I have spoken at length to one or two of the people that have been researching that area, and I'm pretty confident that by the time the independence campaign gets properly underway, 
sooner rather than later, as far as I'm concerned. But by the time it gets properly underway, I think we will have a suite of reasonable answers to counter all of these difficult questions. Because, you know, it's fair enough, we do have to have answers to these questions. We can't expect people to take an independent Scotland and trust. But, um, but I am persuaded this time round that because we got our fingers so badly burned the last time round, that we will be better prepared uh, when this next campaign gets properly underway. And there are, I, I take comfort from the fact that there's a lot of people working quite hard on the research. Okay, thank you. Next up we have Isabel Cooney. Hi Ruth, thanks very much for that uh, talk, it was good. Um, right, now my question is, um, at the end of last year um, in your column in the National, you stated that um, we needed to get out as soon as possible because we were in danger of losing our parliament um, or, or our very, you know, even if the parliament didn't disappear, they'd be toothless. Um, what I want to know is, are you still, of, do you still have that concern? Because I, I have really, um, I just don't trust them at all and I wouldn't put anything past them. So I'd like to know what your take on that is. I absolutely do still think that. I mean, I think we're at a very dangerous tipping point here. If um, the internal market bill becomes law, in effect, what it means that a lot of powers that Holyrood enjoyed will come back from Brussels, not to Holyrood, but to Westminster. I mean, it's a, a, it's it's just ludicrous. It seems to me that we that, that uh, after all the promises about. Uh, this all the vows, all the promises about how Scotland was going to get more powers, how Scotland's powers were going to be beefed up. Instead, there's an absolute um, shameless power grab going on. And I'm not quite sure how we're able to stop it because um, and at the moment, um, we're just having to be observers of this process. It's the, the Scottish Parliament voted against this bill and voted against these measures. But as we know, and as we've seen, the Westminster government just rode rush, roughshod over it. So I am very, very scared about what they're trying to do to Holyrood. And I have no particular answers about how we stop it, except to get out there and get ourselves a parliament and a nation that speaks for itself. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Problem is, we don't have a voice at the moment, do we, with the lockdown and so on? But yeah, yeah, I'm totally with you on that. That is one thing that really concerns me. me Thanks very much for your response. Okay, thank you. Next up, we have Shina Stephen. Yeah, well, part of my question was about the media, which you've kind of answered. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask I know we, we're a non party political group, pensioners for Indy. Um, and I find when I am campaigning, a lot of people say, oh, SNP, we just automatically assume when we're doing a stall that we're a party political, and I'm trying to explain to them that we're not party political, and they kind of take a step back. And I think it's quite important for, for people to realise that you can support independence without having a party political bias. Um, my one big bugbear recently, I mean, I've always been a, an independent supporter, is um, the the lack of, uh, shall we say, um, uh, <laughs> uh, radicalism and uh, um, positive images that the SNP uh, um, and the Greens really uh, set out for helping the yes groups to get the message out there. 
that there's very little backup for the yes groups from the SNP. I mean, I know they're party political and they're only really there to get re-elected at the next election and they know we'll all troop along to the polls in May faithfully. But I want to know, I'd like them to do things just now which they've actually got the powers to do, such as bringing in um, some form of um, land, mm -hmm. uh, looking at land issues. I know they are looking at it, but that's all they're doing. They're only looking at it and they just form another commission, but they never actually do anything. So my question to you is, have you any idea how we can say to older people eh, the good things that the SNP have done? Because we've got to admit that a lot of things recently haven't been very good. Thanks. Well, well I'm not sure whether that was one question or 14. Um, yeah, I know, sorry. <laughs> but I'm a bit of a rant, I know, sorry. Uh, no, that's all right. I, I mean, I, I have never been a member of a political party uh, because I don't think it's appropriate for a journalist to be a member of a political party. And I can, I can confess to you that over the period of my voting life, I've been pretty promiscuous. I've, I've probably at one time or another voted everything but Tory, um, in, especially after we got two votes and we could uh, therefore um, have more choice. So, um, and, and I am also disappointed at the moment that the SNP government doesn't seem to have the bandwidth to deal with uh, going full tilt after COVID and looking at other important issues. But I mean, that's where we are. And, and I listened to, the, the, um, I listened to the, the briefing given by the First Minister at lunchtime, and it's truly terrifying how many people are now getting uh, the virus and how many people are dying from it. So I can see why minds have been concentrated in that. There are all kinds of issues like land reform, which are utterly important that we might remind ourselves, although we're, uh, um, you know, it was originally um, the Labour uh, Lib Dem coalition Scottish government that, that brought in the first bit of land reform. So there's a there's an appetite for these kind of issues, I think, across parties. And and I think you have to make it clear to people that, that um, one of the functions of an independent Scotland is to let people vote for whatever party they want to. For what it's worth, I I always believe I believe that um, I mean it, it's quite shocking when you look at the statistics that between 2015 and 2020, uh, the Labour Party in Scotland managed to go from 41 MPs to one MP. Now a lot of people um, have got views about that. My own view is that the Labour Party is. Um, just on the wrong side of history here. They've set their face against um, their own membership, who that section of their own membership who are pro-independence and who want um, an independent Scotland. And, and they've set themselves against even an independence referendum, which I think is just commonplace democracy. So um, I think you have to say to people, look, how you vote is your concern and how you vote in an independent Scotland is most certainly your concern. But with the SNP government, there is no other party at the moment which can deliver independence for us. So uh, my own first vote will certainly go to the SNP because I don't see any other way of, of achieving the end that I desire. And then I'll take a long, hard look at what the parties are saying and what they're doing after that and make up my mind on the basis of that. Yep. Thank you for that. Uh, next up, we have Val Gould. It's great to see... Um... To see Ruth, I'm always my, she's one of these people that when she's on any political programmes, I'm always relieved to see her there. For example, Politics Scotland, Scotland Tonight. But I've seen it pointed out 
on Twitter and I've seen it and I've noticed it myself that you are often introduced Ruth as a independence supporter or independence campaigner Ruth Wisher whereas people like Andy McIver and you know other uh, unionist commentators aren't introduced as you know union supporter of the union and I just wondered if you've got any what's your view on that? Well, I, I, you know, I've, I've got kind of used to that in a way. It, it's, they do do that, and it, it used to irritate me. Um, and it used to especially irritate me when I wrote, uh, you know, I write occasional pieces for The Guardian, and it, uh, it always had a line at the bottom, um, you know, Ruth Wishart, who's spoken um, up for an independent Scotland, or worse that effect, they had a line in the bottom of my column. And I, I thought to myself, do you know what? Nobody puts a line under anybody else's column of The Guardian saying, this is so-and-so who's spoken up. For staying in the in the UK, so I'm all I'm asking for is a level playing field. Um, but you know, I've come around to thinking if I get introduced in Scottish television as somebody who's an independence campaigner, I've decided I'm going to wear that as a badge of pride rather than getting upset about it because I'm I'm not about to stop being an independence campaigner anytime soon. In fact, I'm not about to stop at all. But it is quite difficult to you can't control how people introduce you. For instance, um, I've just recorded a start of the week for, for BBC for next Monday, and um, I was introducing it as somebody who, quotes was once a staunch Labour supporter, but has uh, long since gone over to the independence cap. And I thought, well, actually, you know, that's a, a ridiculous piece of shorthand for a lifetime of duking about Scottish politics. But that's what broadcasters do. And you either live with it or you or you don't get asked on. OK, thank you. Thanks very much, Ruth. Next up, we'll have Mo Flood. What a brilliant name. First of all, Ruth, I just love your Twitter feed and I thoroughly enjoyed your, your talk today. It was just spot on. Um, I have to agree. I think the crux of your prop, the problem is going to be the 65 plus is, and that, that's why I really wanted to hear what you had to say tonight because I'm aware that in the last vote, 67% of people voted no for independence in the last poll. And also that was within the brackets of 65 plus, but also within the 55 to, 70 to 64 group, there was 57% said no. So I think we really do have a huge problem in that area. Um, I'm an acquired, they're all about 80 plus and if you mention, and I have tried so many times, but it's a dirty word to actually start talking about independence and I do get in their face and I've managed to do a wee bit there, but there is a big problem. But I think really the main problem, again, it's been hit a couple of times by speakers tonight, and that is that the, the unionist spin on the BBC, which an awful lot of people, that's their main source of, uh, communication in the world for many people um, and you know I noticed today in the national that it said one of the headings was BBC bias and I immediately honed in to see oh great that's it they're finally getting caught for it but it was about against Boris Johnson and I looked at 259 letters had been sent with regards to that now I think if you have a huge influence on Twitter but if all of us who moan like hell on MSN Monitor and the likes of that on Twitter, if we actually sat down and wrote letters, everybody to the BBC, they have to, they have to respond to that um, because they are impartial. And 
it's going to be a big thing before the election if we have all the media against us. So that worries me. And it's just to say that, that's all. Well, I mean, it's, I, I feel a bit ambivalent about the BBC because, I, you know, I worked for the BBC for so many years and, um, and I've got a lot of friends and colleagues who are still working for the BBC and I don't quite, I, you know, when I look at the BBC and I look at things like Reporting Scotland and I, I actually don't think there's a deliberate bias. What I think there is is just a horrendously poor news judgment because endlessly I watch um, when there's been a, what I would regard as a, as a major political story and if it gets, you know, if it gets squeezed in underneath uh, a murder in Motherwell, it's lucky. So I think that the, the fault lies, um, and I don't know whether it's deliberate or not, but I think the fault lies with news judgment and with the people who are um, who are selecting the items that they put in the news. And it's actually quite poor that, you know, I fought long and hard and totally fruitlessly for a Scottish Six, um, which was going to be, instead of the, the, the London BBC News, and it was going to be both Scottish News and international news looked at through a Scottish prism. And I thought we needed that. And in fact, what we got many, many years later is a programme called The Nine, which goes out at nine o'clock against all the best programmes for all the other channels. So the idea that people are going to um, select The Nine when they could have, you know, the next episode of their favourite series or whatever is just mince, that's not going to happen. So I feel that we got shortchanged with that. I don't blame the journalists on The Nine, and in fact, they've had some one or, one or two very good documentary pieces on it, but they're 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 up against a huge weight of, of numbers on the other channels. And I'm going to leave you for two seconds and put on my light because the sun has just gone down and I see that I'm now bathed in darkness. And by the way, this is my dog who wanted to say hello. <laughs> uh, I think we should actually be taking more advantage of the, the Zoom platform and the new technology that we've all adapted to so, so very quickly. Because our age group, to be honest, I wouldn't have come out to a meeting on a snowy, icy afternoon like this in Glasgow, and, and probably a great deal of you wouldn't have come out to it either. So what my suggestion is really kind of going back to what you were saying about we only have to persuade one other person. Maybe would it be an idea to have a panel with Ruth and maybe one or two others to answer all these questions, some of which are are you know easy some of, of which are a wee bit more complicated but to be answered in a non-party political way when we get people on from say the SNP and you know no harm to Ian Blackford but he doesn't answer the question I don't know if you saw the the interview with, with him and, and Leslie Riddick and my god talk about slippery Sam just answer the damn sorry about my language answer the blooming question so what i'm suggesting Ruth, would it be an idea to have like our pensioners for in the forum and we all invite along one no voter surely we you know onto this platform they, they might find it a safe environment because they're not in a room with other people they might find a hostile they don't want to come but on zoom if you don't like what the focus in you just close your computer and you walk away no harm done but it, it might give us an opportunity for them to see us, the, the yes voters, we're just all normal people, we're your next door neighbours, we're just normal people. Do you think that would, would have any... Uh... Um, so yes, that's no, a first rate idea. I would, I would just maybe slightly tweak the format you're suggesting and I would have... Um, a Zoom forum, but I would ha I'd have it on specific things that you know would worry 
no voters. For instance, I would have um, a Zoom meeting with or without a with a panel. Perhaps yes, you're right. But but it, but it would be one that was specifically addressed. For instance, pension rights or something like that, or one that specifically addressed social security, or one that specifically addressed um, uh, you know uh, education, whatever. But I would I would I would make it maybe subject led rather than just indie led because that way you're more likely to get people who are um, uh, neutral or hostile to come along. Okay, next up we'll have Rosalind Falls. Um, I've got a few friends who have children and grandchildren who live in England. I think that's one of the things, the border issue. I think that's one of the issues that, again, one of these forums, you might get people interested in being reassured about not being cut off having their children in a foreign country. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And if you have relations, and especially if you've got children who are um, living south of the border, and that's bound to colour your judgment, and that's only natural. I mean, I can't really uh, fail to understand uh, people who are uh, who have these concerns. But but the border issue is an important one, and you're perfectly right in 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 your analysis that um, what's happened in Northern Ireland and what's happened with Gibraltar are very useful. Um, we can go to school on that when we have our own discussions. Okay. Thank you. Mary's asking for a question. I hope it's a short one, Mary. Civil disobedience. Um, now, I'm, I'm thinking about the event where they do something drastic, like um, the internal trade um, market bill taking away all our power suddenly, or, or um, even trying to close down the Scottish Parliament. I don't put anything past this lot because they don't care about their democratic credentials to the world. So if they start to do something like that, is there anything we can do to try and get attention? I mean, my choice of civil disobedience would be our MPs down in Westminster not playing the Westminster game, staging walkouts, not boycotting it because then you just get ignored, but staging walkouts, shouting at the speaker, interrupting the, the, the prime minister's speech, throwing bread rolls, doing something like that, anything to get attention. But they won't do it because they're you know, the way they are. So is there anything we could do to try to get attention if something drastic like that happens, to draw attention of people who are just moseying along, um, you know, thinking things are okay and, and cha all change is, is scary. If, if they bring in some change like that, what can we do that, that kind of, you know, um, throws the book at everybody? Well, I, I think civil disobedience is a kind of two-edged sword because um, if you take the kind of action in West, I mean, I, th I personally think uh, um, a lot of Westminster um, attendance is a waste of space because yeah, we're never going to have a majority absolutely. there. But having having said that, you know, if you if you do anything that's of a a kind of um, you know an overtly muscular nature in that chamber, I think you might antagonise as many people as you attract, and that's all. That's always something you have to calculate. Um, as for ourselves, I mean, I just go back to what I said earlier. It's just important that we tell everybody exactly what the internal market will mean in terms of their own parliament. People, I think, you won't find anybody, you'll be hard pushed to find anybody in Scotland who would want to disinvent Holyrood. People mm -hmm. have got quite proud of Holyrood with all its manifest faults. They like the idea of our having our own parliament in Edinburgh. I think if you could find a, a succinct way of saying to people, especially on social media, what's at stake and what's at risk. I think that's the best way forward. I mean, one of the things that was very potent at the time when uh, 
disability payments were, were came mm -hmm. under threat. And um, there was a, a, a demonstration on Westminster Bridge of, of people who had disability issues, um, mm -hmm. many of them wheelchair bound, and that was a very potent site. Um, so there, there are ways in which you can raise concerns that, that do impinge on people's consciousness like that. But I would urge against anything that in any way, shape or form resembled what happened in America this week. Oh, right. Yes, <laughs> no, I wasn't thinking about that at all. But just attention seeking gestures is, is all I'm thinking. Well, about. I think if, if um, I mean, if there is a, another um, uh, debate in Holyrood on the internal market bill, uh, I Filling the gallery with mm -hmm. with people yeah. of of our demographic uh -huh. would be no would be yeah, no bad way to idea. go about it. Okay, thank you. Uh, next, Robert Ingram, you got a question? What, where do you stand about preparing a written constitution? I'm absolutely in favour of a written constitution. I think it's very much long overdue. However, I regret that we seem to have been discussing it since God was a girl. I think we have to get back to. Um, uh, some some urgent brass tacks. I mean, my problem with with what you're saying is, you know, I think it's, you know, I'm all in favour of of democracy and I'm all in favour of community involvement and all of these things, but at the end of the day, you can't write a constitution with a committee. At the end of the day, you've got to decide on the pillars that you want to put some flesh on and get down to it. Certainly in favour of a written constitution, I just think that we have to, like all the things I mentioned earlier about. Um, about the currency and all these other things, I do think we have to, to use an unfortunate phrase of uh, Boris Johnson's, we do have to have certain things oven ready for when we have to press the independence button. Well, that's the whole idea. If we start preparing now, then we can actually use the transition period to actually put together the legitimate process. But that can only be justified if in the interim, we actually get the ideas from the people as to what sort of constitution they want. I think we're probably on the same side here. <laughs> All right, Ruth. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I can't help noticing, um, not that I'm anxious to leave you, but it's two minutes past, um, three minutes past five, and um, there is a, a, a custom in my house which um, I disavow at my peril, which is that my dog gets fed at 5pm. <laughs> and she's, she's now on the back of the couch throwing me filthy loops. Just one question on the left, I believe Jim Stamper, excuse me, Jim Stamper's got a question and we'll make that one the last. Just coming back to the point you'd made about people being concerned that their children were effectively work, working in England, becoming in a foreign country. I think one of the things that we could possibly emphasise is how centralised the UK is. And it's one of the most centralised countries in Europe, if not the world, is guarding uh, London as being everything happens in London and the southeast. If we can indicate the number of jobs that would come back to Scotland that are already they're in the England doing work that covers Scotland. So we would need some of them back up here to do that work within Scotland. And well, I think there's figures about the number of civil servants jobs that would become available, but even armed forces and all these kinds of things, they're all in England, nearly all. Whereas if we could emphasise, we could get people actually, their children back into Scotland and they wouldn't have to work in England. Well, um, there's just something I want to share with you. Um, I, I think I mentioned that I just recorded an independence thing for... 
start the week next week. And one of the other contributors on it is, a, is an academic. She happens to be a Canadian academic, but, but she does polling of Scottish and English attitudes. And she came up with the very interesting information that when they polled English attitudes, um, England, um, even although it now had English votes for English laws, as they call it, and, and Scots MPs quite properly, in my view, can't, can't vote on, on that. But even though they have that, she said there was a great appetite in England for more power for England, and also that there was no appetite that she could discern for regionalization of England. Now, that being the case, and given what we all think, I think the tidiest solution to all of this is for England and Scotland to be neighboring, friendly, separate, independent states. Yes, agreed. Okay, well, thank you for that, Ruth. Uh, Thanks, everybody. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you very much again. Thank, thank you. you. Bye now. You've been listening to a podcast by Pensioners for Independence. This was a meeting organised by the Greater Glasgow Pensioners for Indie Group. If you'd like to listen to any more of our podcasts, have a look on our website. That's pensionersforindependence.scot. Or have a look on SoundCloud. Search for Scottish Independence Podcasts.